Let us now join with Christians around the world and through history from the Book of Common Prayer, a prayer for Easter Sunday. O God, who for our redemption gave your only begotten Son to the death of the cross and by his glorious resurrection delivered us from the power of our enemy, grant us so to die daily to sin that we may evermore live with him in the joy of his resurrection through Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. <clears throat> Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 24, 36 through 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to, here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Katie. Well, thank you again for being here with us. My name is Stacy Croft. If I missed you earlier, I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church in town and grateful to be able to bring this message to you. Uh, it may be something you've heard before. It may be something you hear every Easter. Uh, but I really am struck, especially just as a pastor, as somebody who... Uh, really studies the Bible and has to speak a lot on it, how much Easter and the resurrection really are hitting me harder even this year than ever before. Uh, because it's forcing me to say, is this a real thing? Is this a reality? E even for somebody like me who, who studies the Bible and talks to people all about it, I still ask the same questions. Doubts are all around us, right? We always have doubts. We always have questions. We should. In fact, we, we, we are people that should be asking questions. If we didn't, then do we really think we have our arms wrapped around everything? Do we th really think we comprehend it all? And what encourages me about the Bible, and even in this passage in itself, is how much the Bible includes and encourages doubt. 
it, it doesn't snuff it out. It doesn't say to you and to me that the things that you bring are unimportant. Whoa, whoa, whoa don't have questions. No, 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 no. And even, I want to say, if you're new here especially, or even if you're kind of coming back into Christianity or maybe walking into the church for the first time this year or at some point, to encourage you the fact that this is not a place where everybody is to have all their answers met. We come here because we believe there is an answer, not because I have the, the corner on truth, but because the truth has me backed into a corner. It was a few years ago that um, <laughs> I was watching uh, the Discovery Channel, and there was a man named Nick Walinda who was a tightrope walker. He had come from a family of tightrope walkers. Uh, in fact, his grandfather was one, and, and actually died doing it, and it was a big passion of his and his family. And so he had been doing these uh, stunts, and one was in, uh, down in, uh, you know, across like two hotels uh, on a bicycle and those kind of things. But his real stunt that he wanted to do, and the reason Discovery was giving him all this money, was to say, you're going to walk across the Grand Canyon. We're going to put a rope as far as we can, a cable, and see if you can do this. Well, it showed him, you know, warming up, practicing, uh, trying hard with, you know, fans and, and things next to him, practicing with, like, you know, cushions on either side of a cable just to, to practice getting gusts of wind. They'd turn on these huge, enormous fans, and he'd have to practice that. When the day came, it was uh, it, it overwhelming to him. It was obvious. Uh, it, nothing prepared him for this. No stunt he had done before. He was visibly afraid. He was walking out on this thing 1,500 feet. It took him 23 minutes to do it. But the thing that was so fascinating about it was what he was doing along the way because he was praying hard as he was going. And they had this Twitter feed that was running for discovery on this. And it was fascinating to go through the Twitter feed and read what people were saying about him. And, and what was interesting is that, that Nick had this a 10 second, 10 to 15 second delay, you know, in case something happened, they didn't want to show anything. And they had, they said they, we have a paramedic on scene. You know, if you're falling into the Grand Canyon, I don't know if a paramedic is going to do much, but at least there'll be a witness, right? So he's walking across here and he's, he's, he's visibly praying and the Twitter feed is just going crazy. And I want to read to you a couple of the Twitter feeds that I thought were fascinating. One was a student it said, barely even open my French book this, for this exam. Praise you, Jesus. You're my Savior, Jesus. Take control over these exams. I'm just not going to study. <laughs> There's somebody else who said, you know, this could be a PR nightmare for Jesus if this thing goes wrong. Somebody else said, this could be proof that God is capable of awesome things. Can you tell me that God isn't watching over this guy? It was all this religious speak because he was praying. It wasn't just people saying, wow, look at him walk across. It turned into this question of, is he going to make it? And how does God play into this? And here's the question I want to ask. It's kind of an obvious one. If he fell, would God still be God? It could, still, it could be a PR nightmare, right? I mean, th I, I think that guy was funny, but that really is an interesting quote. Because especially when we approach the resurrection of Jesus, when we approach something as big as that, many of us may think of it as, oh yeah, it's just a part of Christianity. It's just something that because I just call myself a Christian, it's just adhered into that. It's just kind of an additive. It's kind of, but Christianity is saying, this is the culmination of Christianity. 
that the resurrection is? Or is it simply a PR stunt by, Christian, by Christians over time to say this is what makes us significant? Uh, why do we believe this thing? Is it a reality? Is it something we can really adhere to? And I, I think this passage this morning answers three questions that I think we need to be asking. If you aren't asking these questions, you should be asking these questions. And the first one is, can I believe it? Can I believe this resurrection? Can I believe it's real? The second one is, is, is it relevant? Is, is the resurrection even really relevant? Even if it, it was real, what, what's its relevancy for today? And the final one is, what, why do I need it? So the first being, you know, can I believe this? Kind of an intellectual question. It's interesting because we live in a real materialistic culture. And so when the, the disciples here were walking, and the entirety of this passage is written where it begins in chapter 24, where these disciples are walking down a road, and Jesus is still in the grave to them. The, all their hopes, everything they wanted, they weren't thinking that he was going to rise again. Even though he told them this, they didn't think that. They were pretty set on the fact that they knew what death meant. Death means you're still there. So when Jesus appeared to them the first time, and then even again in this passage to more of the disciples, they were still in a stupor. They still thought, whoa, who are you? They didn't, it says actually they didn't recognize him. They didn't know who he was. And it's interesting because for us, we typically look at their culture. We typically look at the Bible and say, well, it's an old book. It kind of it, it brings up things like miracles and resurrections that really aren't engaging in, in what we can believe today intellectually. But I would say quite the opposite. There's actually articles plenty written on the fact that religion is actually growing in spite of what is going on in our country. Uh, David Brooks, who's one of my favorite uh, writers, New York Times writers, he wrote an article in The Atlantic called Kicking the Secularist Habit. He's not actually a Christian. He wrote this. Like a lot of people these days, I'm a recovering secularist. I accepted the notion that the world becomes richer and better educated, and as it does, it becomes less religious, extrapolating from a tiny and up, uh, unrepresentative sample of humanity. But it is now clear that the secularization theory is untrue. The human race does not necessarily get less religious as it grows richer and better educated. We are living through one of the greatest periods of scientific progress and the creation of wealth, and at the same time, we are in the midst of a religious boom. It's exploding. So for many of us, we, we think that even, even people who may not consider themselves Christians are seeing this rapid growth around us, and the, and the resurrection actually gives us amount of testimony for that. You know, the Bible's actually written in a way that we wouldn't typically want it to be written. We think of it as just this kind of compilation of people kind of writing stories together, but it's actually written in a narrative historical eyewitness account. Even the beginning of Luke itself starts and it says, Luke put together a, a, a testimony. He said he interviewed people. Luke chapter one, Luke was a doctor himself. He was somebody who was not, he was the only person who was not Jewish, which actually marked him as a different kind of follower of Jesus. He had probably more in common with us than he did with the other disciples in a sense. And so when he wrote about these things, he said he traveled and met and talked to people and gathered stories and gathered accounts historically to talk about the witnesses. And notice when they go to the empty tomb, these people, and as Jesus appeared to them, they thought they saw a ghost. 
To be a witness of Jesus, it, it, we typically look at the disciples and others and think, well, scientifically, maybe they weren't all together. They weren't in our kind of age where they have iPhones and where they have everything at their fingertips. Maybe they just weren't able, but, but no, they, they didn't think a body should be coming out of the ground. They thought they saw a ghost. It even says, even when they were joyful seeing the things in his hands, even with joy, they still didn't believe. They still had trouble realizing that there is a physical, actual, real Jesus standing in front of them. That's an issue for them. And, and they expected him to be dead. Even though Jesus said over and over, there are countless times, and even the disciples said, you're crazy, why do you have to die? He said, I will be coming again. They did not think it would happen. Jesus told them over and over. And this is a part of the, the point of the Bible is to say, look, the Bible is not pulling punches. They thought he should still be in the ground, but there are eyewitnesses, an account, interviews, testimonies of people that thought, whoa, this is totally against what I thought it would be. We, we think of these kind of things often in faith and reason as being pitted against one another, but the Bible doesn't do that. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe from the outset of Christianity, maybe reading the Bible or being a Christian, you've thought that maybe your faith has to supersede or suspend reason at some level. But, but the Bible never does that. I, I want to encourage you, even if you're a student here and you've encountered this a lot on campus, the Bible says faith and reason go together. Jesus rose physically and tangibly, materially, so we would know matter matters. So we know our bodies are physical. It's not just spirit and physical separated. There's actually a reality to that, that these eyewitnesses saw, they had to see, they had to touch, that faith and reason go together. They're actually books, like Proverbs in the Old Testament. So it's a book that was actually written for, uh, for children to learn wisdom. And some of these Proverbs are really interesting. They say things like, notice the ant as it gathers leaves, you know, things like that. You're like, okay, why is that? Well, it's because the Proverbs want us to say and look at the world that has been created and step into it. Science is the fact that we understand what is around us and make sense of it. The Bible's doing the same thing. The Bible's also saying, though, here's how it's broken. Here's what needs, needs to be fixed. And here's how it's done. These eyewitnesses were necessary. They had to see the physical Jesus. It, it comes later. There's another... Uh, uh, a book later written by a man named Paul. And he wrote a letter to a church in Corinth, which was really the second biggest city in the Roman Empire besides Rome. Massive city, huge commerce, huge trade. People went there to make it. You went to Corinth to be somebody. Sound kind of familiar? Nashville is becoming that kind of city. It may not be New York, it may not be L.A., but it is a city where people are moving here 800 a day because this is a place where people can have commerce, trade, be someone, make a name for yourself. It's a huge place, not far from that. And this was only 30 years after Jesus has resurrected. Actually, I'm sorry, even that. 15 years, I doubled that. Paul wrote it only 15 years after Jesus resurrected. And he wrote this. He wrote that people could come. He wrote about 500 people saw Jesus, witnessed him raise up. 
touched him, spoke with him. And it even says here that he ate with them. He said, give me fish. Let me eat with you. Think about that. They're sitting there marveling that he's raised from the dead. And he says, you got anything to eat? How crazy is that? Why? Because intellectually, they had to know, did, the, did we really believe this? These are the people that followed him for three years. They followed the actual Jesus, the one that maybe all of us in this room, even if you would say you're a skeptic, say, yeah, I believe that Jesus taught some good things. But what he's saying is, it's, it has to be more than that. It's not enough just to believe the teachings. The teachings are all pointing to something greater. Tim Keller, who's a, a pastor in New York City, uh, was invited to uh, Google at one point. He had written his uh, first big book on this kind of topic. And it was an interesting, you can see it online if you go on YouTube. And he was invited to Google and did an actual interview with all the members of Google. It was really fun to see him interact. And the Q&A at the end, the question and answer time, was really probably one of my favorite parts. Because at the very end, a guy challenged him on the resurrection and asked this question. So if you hear me say Google guy, that's who I'm referring to. The Google guy said, okay, let me pose a question to you. I'm actually God, and if you don't bow down and worship me, then I'll send you, send you to hell. And my hell is a lot worse than the Christian hell. There's a lot of uh, 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 in-laws there and a lot of problems there and all these kind of things. And, and you're probably not going to worship me, but why not? Tim Keller said this, if you died on the cross after living a life in which everybody is amazed at the quality of it, and then afterwards hundreds of people see you with nail prints, 500 at a time, repeatedly over 40 days, well, that's a little different than people might start to say. People who didn't believe are now believing. They come and see you. They put their fingers in the nail prints. That's, that's a different situation and really what you have with Christianity. The Google guy then said, that did actually happen to me, but I was in Ant Antarctica, and you probably didn't hear about it, and you can't provide any rational evidence for it, but it really did happen. Listen to the response. But Christians would never say that. They would say, here's the eyewitness accounts. Here are 500 people. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote this 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, he says, and there are still 500 people who saw it and believed. He said, Paul says, I don't want you to believe in Christianity unless you go and talk to these people. This is why the Bible writes it. It writes it in space and time so that even in the interviews, the people could read it and go, I'm going to go check that out and talk to the people that actually saw it even 15 years later, most of which were still alive. It's an intellectual, you know, event. It happens. We can believe it because it's eyewitness. They're witnesses. It's accounted for. It is historical and tangible and had to be so in order for it to be real and believable for us. Just as much as we are today, materialistic. It is a material resurrection. How is it relevant though? Okay, maybe those are good arguments. You can take them with you. They're good things. Maybe you can read the Bible and, and, and maybe you can read Luke and say that. But how is it really relevant? Because when you leave these doors... You go into different spaces, family, jobs, friendships, cities, wherever it may be, and you have questions that come up all the time about this. I do too. 
I love engaging those things. And if you're here even this morning, if you want to meet for coffee or lunch, I would love to. I, I do that every week with people because I love discussing these things. How do the questions actually engage with it? Is it relevant to us culturally, socially? You know, we live now in a time that's considered a post-Christian culture. And what that means is that Christianity doesn't really have as much of a say at the table as it used to. You know, uh, there have been moments and periods in our, in our history as a, as a country where Christianity could be talked about and it was a relevant thing. But now there are structures in place that, that, that there are not enough structures in place for people like, uh, that would follow Jesus. They say, well, that's great. I'm glad you actually like Christianity, but it doesn't really have any, you know, connection, any tethering to today. How, how is it really relevant? That's, what, that's kind of the culture we're in now. And, and to me, I, to encourage you, I actually feel more excited in some sense about that than less. I find myself seeing that the Bible actually doesn't put itself in a place of regressive culture as much as maybe people think. In fact, these men and women who were following Jesus, you see here in this passage, thought that they were following somebody different. Do you notice in this, while they were still t- talking about this in verse 36, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. And they had questions even before this verses, and they asked Jesus, they said, as he approached them, he said, what are you all talking about? They were on a journey, kind of a walk about seven miles, and, and for, during that time, these two disciples were talking all about Jesus and who he was. And when Jesus said, hey, what are you all talking about? He said, hey, there was this guy I, who came And he said he was going to redeem Israel. That word redeem just means buy back. It means free them because Israel was under Roman oppression. And so to them, they thought, there's going to be someone who's coming who's going to free us from this oppression, who's going to take us out of this this horrid place we're in. And Jesus says, huh, let let me tell you about who Jesus was and is and I am. And it isn't until, and, and, and even in that moment, they don't see who he is, it says, until he opened the Bible to them and explained to them who he was. It says, let me tell you, everything must be fulfilled, it says, that is written about me in the law of Moses, prophets, and the Psalms, because the relevancy of this story is way bigger. See, think about them. They thought they were on an amazing political campaign. They thought they had the right guy. They put all their chips on him. This guy can feed thousands of people without bringing in food. This guy can make the lame walk. Certainly, he can throw off Roman oppression if he can do that. And yet, what they saw was their Savior hung on a tree, crucified. The one that they thought was going to when the day was actually put on a cross, and a cross was for insurrectionists. It was for people who were against Rome. It was for the enemy of the state. And they thought, our hopes are dashed. It's over. What were they doing? Just the same as we do, importing their cultural metaphor, importing our cultural metaphor into who we think Jesus should be for us. Taking Jesus and heralding him and putting him in a position where he says, that's actually not who I am. And he says, I'm not less than that. I'm actually more than that. 
Because there's always going to be an oppressor. We may live in a country where oppression may be not very much. Let's be honest. It's not at all compared to any other countries. There are people just in the last few weeks that have lost their lives simply because they said the name Jesus. We live in a place where we don't have to worry about that as much. But we still import our culture into it. And what Jesus does and God does throughout the Bible is to say, look, I need to critique as well as affirm your culture. God's resurrection, his work, his story of what's called redemptive history, his magnificent work through time and space does a million things to the cultures that it attaches to. It critiques every culture and affirms it. That we cannot look at ourselves as culturally superior just as they did in that moment. There's a a Jewish historian named Robert Alter that I've really appreciated because he's really drawn this up a lot even in the Old Testament where in the Old Testament it talks about over and over these Old Testament narratives. And and maybe you've read the Old Testament some and it's very confusing to you. Well, hear hear about how he describes it. That oftentimes there are these uh, multiple marriages. There are these ways that women are treated and these things that go on in both the Old and some in the New Testament as well. But over and over you see that God comes back into the picture and actually thwarts what's going on. One of the ways that happens is even in birth order that typically the firstborn in a house would receive the inheritance. But oftentimes you read in the Old Testament, Robert Alter says, that he reverses that. He'll actually thwart that plan in order for him to use his plan of bringing about salvation for that family in history. And it confuses the family. It confuses the people in it. Even when you see multiple marriages in that, in those passages, God is oftentimes confusing them, saying, whoa, 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 what you're doing is not helpful. <laughs> He's critiquing their culture. He's speaking against them. Even things in ways that we look at the Bible. It's interesting that in this century, right after, this, this first century, right after we read these passages, in the Roman Empire, as Christian, Christianity grew, it would become a radical changer in culture of that time. In two ways, I'll just throw out. There are many other ways we could say, but two major ones. The first was how women were treated. Women, oftentimes we look at the Bible and think of the Bible as maybe misogynistic or maybe it's regressive. But I would submit to you, take a moment before you import what maybe your struggle is in your culture here into that and look at how God and actually Jesus approaches women in the Bible Because in the first century, Christians were described as radically liberal in the way that they brought in women who were uneducated, who were second-class citizens in that culture and time. And the Christian church in the first century brought them in and actually made them a part of not just the church itself, but even in servant and leadership places that they taught, they walked with others. They were not second class, they were first with everyone else. Liberal in its culture. But also the other thing was that in that culture, children were seen only as useful. Many children were discarded or sent out because for them it was a culture of production. You must have children to do the work, to do the labor. 
And the first century church was seen as incredibly conservative because they saw every single one of those children that were laid out, discarded, and brought in. They were actually incredibly conservative because their churches grew by number because they brought in both liberally in women and conservatively in children into the church and it continued to build culturally against and yet caring for its culture and affirming. It is so important that we understand this because we typically, and I wanna ask you this humbly, would you be willing to submit yours and my cultural imperatives and rights politically, philosophically, socially, to what Jesus is trying to tell us about himself, not about what we want him to be. That is enormous because we're a storytelling culture. Look, here's the difference in Christianity and any other religion. The events drive the teaching rather than the teaching drive the events. Notice here, it's all about these events that happen and everyone's having to react to them. They don't believe it. They're saying, whoa, whoa, this is against our culture. This is not what we thought. These are events that they have to react to. That's different than having some sort of teaching and then we create events from it. Jesus came in. That's actually what the word gospel means. Maybe you've heard that word before, gospel. Think it may be a religious term. It's actually not. In, in this century, they would use that word gospel as a proclamation. That's what it means. It means a proclamation of, of something or someone. Maybe they would use it, and even in the, this century, they would say, of certain Caesar Augustus, the, pro, the gospel of Caesar Augustus. They would proclaim these things that would be not opinion, but events. That word would be attached to things of like a, a, a war being won or a king ascending a throne. But here, it's attached to Jesus, the gospel The good news, it is something we must react to. It's something we must connect to. It's a story that we have to be a part of. Do you know why Netflix does this? Many of you are Netflix. All of you looked up when I said Netflix. Because Netflix has started this chain of genius. Because if you go on Netflix, they're one of the, the, the major instigators of not putting one show at a time, but putting all the shows so we can all binge and you know, be those kind of people, right? And now we use it as actually an adverb or verb. We're like, hey, I'm Netflixing, right? Like we talk about it that way. You know why they did that? When they did surveys, they actually said, Netflix themselves came out and said, people are desiring more complex storytelling in their life because we're longing to see our story connect to something larger. That's exactly what the gospel is about. It is the event of Jesus Christ coming into our culture to say, here's the relevancy for your life, that you do have your story. It is, it's made up of all sorts of messes and all sorts of glorious things. But it is connected to a larger story, something bigger, something that's been going on since the dawn of time. And the resurrection is the pinnacle of that. If the resurrection does not happen, then the relevancy of it is just great teachings and morals. You know what? I've worked on campuses before for decades. I've been around. I love discussing philosophy and other religions. I'm very, very familiar with them. And the thing that I've seen over and over, the connection points are always the morality, always the stories of moral code. And you may be in here in that place. 
But the one difference, the big difference that I see over and over is that who fulfills that code? This is why Jesus says, everything must be fulfilled from the law, prophets, and writings. That's all of history. That's not just saying, hey, this book that you have in front of you. He's saying the entirety of what has been written, things that have gone on around you and before you and will come after you are fulfilled in him. Those who came before the resurrection longed for that day as we even read in Ezekiel. And those of us here on this side in between this one and the next one look back to it and say, are you kidding? It connects to our story because we have to have it. We all long to be wrapped up in a story that's bigger than ourselves. We must have it. We're all there because we know our story is thus. So what does it mean to you? We've talked about it has to be something historically and it has to be something relevant. But what about for us personally? Why do you really need it? The victory that Jesus brought is different than what we may think. Here's why you need it personally. These people wanted victory, and that's what we want. Every day we go in and out, whether we are in a spectrum of we're just moving here within a couple weeks, hoping that our life here would establish in, in glory. Maybe we're on a campus, we're about to graduate, looking forward to where we're going. Maybe we're here, we have a slew of children, and we're just glad we made it this morning. Maybe you're here in Nashville as a home where you're actually retiring, you're enjoying life here and and the culture that it has. No matter where you are on the spectrum, we're all longing for this fulfillment, for this victory, for the tangible ways that you and I see the things in us to actually be dealt with. Look, even if you're here, I want to say this again, even if you're here and you're kind of still going, I don't know what I think about Christianity, you know what you think about your own sin and mess. I know you see the things in yourself that you wish weren't there. I know you see the things that you've done to other people and you've encountered them that you think, how could I do that? Or how could they do that to me? The resurrection must be real, not just is it historically, and not only is it culturally relevant for our story as a people, but it must be for us as peoples because we have to have the tangible, nasty mess in us dealt with with victory. I was able to go to a dear friend of ours' funeral yesterday and to speak at it and to be a part of it with, they're a part of our church. And I will tell you, it shook me to the core, not because I encountered our glorious friend's death, but because so real is her body, so real did she believe, and I remember seeing her and hugging her as she was struggling with cancer. And as her husband, who's here, and we we hugged together and held hands, looking forward, praying for her. Her eyes were no longer on victory necessary over that cancer. Her eyes were on the victory that someone else who tangibly went to death to beat it so that she didn't have to worry about it at all. To feel the strength in her hand as I held it, to see her eyes as she gazed with strength 
about the victory that is hers, is that not real? Is cancer not real? Is death not real? So can our Savior have to be real for us? Doesn't Jesus, is this a mere quip? Are we here this morning for a good shout out and hope the rest of our week goes well? Or does there have to have a reality where Jesus actually came out of the grave? A real rock moved. A real body came forth. And death itself began to turn backwards. As much as your nastiness, as much as the things you're dealing with, some of you may be sick in this room, some of you may come from abused homes, some of you may come from a million different places, may not even be thinking about any of those things, but just riddled with anxiety. If we don't have a savior who came from the grave, those things just cause us to be cynics and we will be in them. We will remain in what Anne Lamott said, as author, we will remain Good Friday people. The cross is real because Jesus had to address the reality of sin, but the res- resurrection is real because hope is real as well. We have to have both, and if we don't, then we don't have the newness of reality. This is what it means for us. It's intellectually true, it's culturally true, and it is personally true for each and every one of us. Would you come to him? Here's what's amazing. Our faith in him doesn't put Jesus on the throne. Our faith in him didn't bring him out of the tomb. He came out to give us faith. And he remains out for your faith to grow in him. Moment by moment by moment. This is the reality and love of Easter. This is where you bring your doubts, just as they did in the Bible. And this is where your faith grows in him. Let me pray for us. God, that you would do such a thing, that you wouldn't just send us philosophies, you don't send us ideals, you don't send us mere quips, you sent your son in flesh. A son who people followed for years and yet at the closest to them, that even the closest of the closest to Jesus didn't believe or think they needed your death and resurrection. And yet they did desperately, just as we do now. Our first century friends who were there, who watched you die on the cross and then walked to the tomb to see a rock rolled back and go, where in the world is his body? Only to have you appear to them, eat with them, and say, I am with you always to the end of the age. That was not just words for their hearts, but for ours. Would we in this room, Lord, if there are people here this morning who are wrestling with even the reality of the resurrection, come to you and dabble in it. Look at the historicity of it. Look at their story in it. And God, those of us who would say we would follow you, would we be shaken again? so we might take hold of it and live in the reality, leave these doors changed, not just simply happy, 
but with a joy that supersedes any circumstances we see in our lives, just as you did in theirs, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in the matchless name of the one who came out of that tomb who is alive now, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.